The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from The Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at The Washington Post. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm... This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, April 30th. Today, how countries around the world are cautiously beginning to reopen and how Democrats are responding to an accusation against Joe Biden. The countries that have been most successful at tackling this crisis early on and responding in a way that has kept the number of deaths down in their countries has allowed them to now be in a position to reopen their economies. A lot of them are doing it gradually, but they are pushing ahead. I'm Rick Nowak, and I'm a foreign affairs reporter for The Washington Post, and I'm based in Berlin. They're doing it also with very different preconditions and very different factors inside their countries that are going to determine if it works. And to these countries that have begun the process of reopening, it seems like they are factoring in a lot of different considerations when it comes to deciding when it's safe to do that and also how to do that in a way that is safe. So maybe if we could start by talking about Wuhan in China, the place where the pandemic essentially began. What has the reopening looked like there? And and how has that reopening been dependent on all the things that have transpired over the past few months? Well, Wuhan certainly is, is a very special case because people living in Wuhan were under a lockdown for more than 70 days. So that's that's a lot longer than even in Italy and Spain to also very hard hit countries by this virus have been under a lockdown. And it, it also has taken a very strong psychological toll in Wuhan because it happened so early on during this pandemic. There was very little known about, about this virus and how long the, the lockdown may last. My name is Lydia Chen. I work for a bank in New York City, and I came to Wuhan on January 19th. To me, my first sense of new life actually happened April 3rd. Is when uh, It was a Friday. Um, that's when I went out to like a local shopping district. It reopened, and I went in almost like a half nervous, so you don't know whether somebody conquered the virus till they're tested. So you, we know there are still people out there. What you're also seeing is that a lot of people are still hesitant to to simply go outside because they're afraid of, of asymptomatic carriers, even though China has been saying that they've essentially succeeded in battling this virus. I was expecting to see just the stores, but not the street food. 
that I was surprisingly, I found even a few street food vendors open. And to me, I, oh my God, that's my symbol of like, my life is back. What's also happening in China is that a lot of people have to carry or install Uh, smartphone apps. So they're constantly being monitored uh, everywhere they go. Uh, you know, their health status might change and they may have to go back uh, into quarantine. So then you have a country like South Korea, which is similar to China in that it was affected pretty early on in this crisis. How did they respond and, and how quickly did they respond? South Korea is interesting because it is so close to China And it is a democracy. So in, in many ways, it um, has become a role model for a lot of other countries, um, and especially democracies, and how to deal with this virus. W what they did was very aggressive testing and contact tracing early on. That has allowed them to basically reopen from a very loose level. My colleague uh, Minjo Kim in Seoul, South Korea, has been covering this for months, and she's been observing how South Koreans have responded to this pandemic. Hello, I'm now out on the streets in trendy Hongdae neighborhood in Seoul. It's actually the start of the long weekend for the first time since the coronavirus outbreak hit the country. Even at the peak of the coronavirus outbreak here, which was earlier in spring in late February, authorities did not enforce a shutdown of businesses and people were still allowed to move freely within the country. What the government did was to impose a nationwide social distancing campaign, urging people to remain indoors and refrain from traveling. Last week, South Korea eased those social distancing guidelines and rules which were issued in mid-March, because after that, the virus spread in the country has slowed down. Schools remain shut, but people who are working from home are now heading back to the office. Churches resumed Sunday services, and people are lining up in front of reopened dance clubs. But one thing that's different from the past is that almost everyone I see here are wearing masks. Mask wearing has become a new normal in South Korea. Health authorities warned about a potential flare-up of the virus after this holiday weekend, when people will be leaving their homes to go to parks, mountains, dance clubs, restaurants to enjoy their break. So because of their widespread testing and contact tracing, there's a lot more confidence among regular people in South Korea that it's like safe to go out, safe to engage in business again, safe to return to life as normal. Yeah. And you saw that, especially during the parliamentary elections, when the government that had initially been criticized for being too slow in responding to this outbreak won a landslide majority because people simply credited them with, in fact, having responded far quicker than, than other countries. I also want to talk about two countries that I think we can say objectively did not respond well to the crisis at the beginning and let things really get out of hand before they had to lock people down. Italy and also Spain. Now that they've gotten through what some people are, are, are forecasting as the worst of the outbreak, 
How are they starting to prepare for eventually opening back up? Both Italy and Spain are under huge pressure to open up again. Their lockdowns were very strict, um, which has kept children in Spain, for instance, indoors for weeks. Um, Leaders in Spain and, and Italy, they certainly feel an enormous pressure to open up. But the question is, at what pace? And I think both countries have now decided to to go about it very slowly, to reopen gradually and in phases. So what exactly is that process of reopening going to look like? Like, do they have an actual plan in place for how they're going to phase this back in? So the Italian government has come up with a roadmap. Our Rome bureau chief, Chico Harlan, has been following this. It's 6.30 p.m., I am on our uh, apartment communal rooftop, which is my favorite spot for being in the outdoors, or at least it's my favorite spot now since it's the only spot. Um, Italy has been under lockdown for seven weeks, and it's one of the strictest lockdowns in the West. Maybe the strictest people can walk their dogs so long as they stay within 200 meters of the building. You don't see families out strolling. You don't see kids playing. The, uh, The prime minister, Giuseppe Conte, just a few days ago gave out a few details about the roadmap. As things loosen and uh, the restrictions will still remain fairly tight after these changes first take place, May 4th, manufacturers and construction companies can restart. And yes, people can go jogging again. And then on May 18th, museums will reopen, retail stores. And beyond that, into June, maybe some restaurants. It all depends on whether Italy sees a second wave. So already, you know, people are out a little more on the streets. The weather is so nice. I have a suspicion that those dog walks aren't all within 200 meters. Though the the end of the lockdown is in sight, there are just so many steps between here and quote-unquote normal that it's almost impossible to see how that ever comes back, or at least least in the coming months. But the question is, are people going to follow those orders? In Italy, for instance, one regional leader has already said he's going to ignore those rules and going to reopen quicker than officially mandated. I also want to talk about New Zealand, which has in a lot of ways been seen as this kind of gold standard for their way of handling the coronavirus. And now, as of early this week, they have started to loosen some of their restrictions. There is no widespread undetected community transmission in New Zealand. We have won that battle, but we must remain vigilant if we're to keep it that way. That includes safely returning more New Zealanders to work, enabling more businesses to reopen and allowing some of the recreational activities we've missed in the past four weeks. Well, it has to do with the way Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern approached this crisis. Now is not the time to ease up, but rather the time for all of us to focus even harder on the mission that we have. They're trying to essentially stamp out the virus to eliminate it. That doesn't mean that they're going to have zero infections. It means that they're going to be able to trace um, every single case and essentially cut local transmissions. And people generally have been very supportive of that plan in the early stages. We've also heard from our colleague Anna Fifield, who is in New Zealand right now. And she said that on the first day of things starting to reopen, people were really excited. 
At the moment, I'm sitting in the car park of McDonald's restaurant, which has just opened today. Uh, it's Tuesday here and New Zealand has just come out of lockdown. So now we are in level three, which means that restaurants have been allowed to reopen as long as they can operate in a way that means they have no contact with their customers. Um, what's your name? My name's Aaron. Aaron who? Pace. So, uh, why have you come to McDonald's today? Because my children won't let me go home without it. <laughs> Plain and simply, they are just begging for cheeseburgers. Really? That is what they want, and I'm not allowed to go home until I provide it. Okay. So, <laughs> is everybody in your house pretty happy today? Very much. We're more happy because we're back at work. So. But it's really about stimulating the economy. It's not about people being able to socialise together again. So we've all been told to stay in our bubbles, which is our immediate household or the people that we've been spending the last five weeks with. Uh, that hasn't eased up at all. But uh, the government is trying to get the economy moving again. So when you look at all of these different kind of case studies around the world of when and how folks are deciding to reopen and and in what ways that's a response to how they dealt with this crisis in the first place, what do you think that there is that the U.S. can take away from those different case studies? The main observation our correspondents around the world have made so far is that the countries that were especially quick to respond at the beginning of their outbreaks are now opening up in quite the opposite way. They're going about it very slowly and very cautiously, taking one step at a time. The looming threat, of course, is that the more confident they get that it's going to work, the more inclined they might become to take serious risks. So until there is a vaccine, countries are going to continue to face precarious choices. Essentially, they're going to try to balance the economic benefits of reopening against the public health risks associated with doing so. Rick Nowak reports on foreign affairs for The Post. It's already a strange period for Joe Biden and his presidential campaign. He's stuck at home. He's trying to get his message out through a makeshift TV studio in the basement of his home in Wilmington, Delaware. Then on top of that comes an explosive allegation of sexual assault that Joe Biden had sexually assaulted a former Senate staffer in the early 1990s. Matt Weiser covers politics for The Post. He's been reporting on a new allegation against Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee. And that has complicated just about everything. It's complicated his response. He has engaged in a couple of television interviews, but has yet to be asked about this. He's not agreed to an interview to talk about this. And it's dramatically different from the way it would be if the campaign were in normal times. There would be multiple instances where reporters could engage him, could shout questions at him. He could answer it 
and address kind of what is a very explosive charge that his campaign has put out statements about, but he himself has yet to fully answer. So these are allegations coming from a woman named Tara Reid. Who is she and what is she alleging that Biden did? So Tara lives in California. Um, She was uh, working for Joe Biden in the early 1990s as a Senate staffer, a junior level staffer in his Senate office at the time. And she is alleging um, an allegation of sexual assault, that there was a moment in 1993 somewhere on the Capitol grounds where uh, Joe Biden pushed her up against a wall. And I was wearing a blouse and he just had me up against the wall and the wall was... Tara first made these allegations last month in an interview on a podcast hosted by Katie Halper. And and we should probably warn people, this clip contains a graphic description of sexual assault. And his hands were on me and underneath my clothes. And um, yeah, and then... He went, oh, he went down my skirt, but then up inside it. And he uh, penetrated me with his fingers, whatever. And um, I, uh, he was kissing me at the same time. At the time, we, as well as the New York Times and others began sort of fully trying to investigate and figure out what we could learn about those allegations. We spent several weeks doing so. To, to try to talk to everybody we possibly could and try to verify as, as much as we could. She had come forward a year earlier with a different allegation, similar to ones that we had heard other women experience, where she had said that Joe Biden had put his hands around her, her neck and made her feel uncomfortable. He, he, was, he was too touchy with her. At the time, she did not reveal this allegation of sexual assault. And do we know why Tara Reid didn't talk about this part of her story back then last year when she was talking about these other incidents where Biden had made her uncomfortable or touched her in ways that she didn't appreciate? She has said that she just did not feel comfortable at the time revealing the full nature of her story. And it took her more time to to come forward. And what have you and The Post been able to report about this allegation? And what have we also heard from other outlets in terms of things that support her narrative? So we have tried to figure out if there are any documents, if there are any people, if there's anything to contemporaneously illustrate anything that happened at the time. We've been able to talk to a friend of hers that she told immediately after uh, this incident took place, who has described being told by Tara the nature of the allegations. We talked to her brother who, you know, initially said that he knew of uh, some incident like this that had had occurred. He clarified later in a text message that that went further and said that he knew of, of the sexual nature of the of the allegation. She also said that she told her mother. Um, her mother has since passed away. We have also since learned through Business Insider recently spoke with uh, a former neighbor of Tara's who about two years after the incident took place recalls being told by Tara the nature of the allegation with the specifics of what Tara has said. We've reached that neighbor who's confirmed to us the the same details. There's one other person who who Tara mentioned this to a later employer who who she had mentioned 
uh, having an uncomfortable situation with a former boss, a senator. Uh, she does not remember her naming Biden specifically, but it is in line with sort of some of the other the other allegations. So we have several people who've been told by Tara around the same time period that something happened. And, and in some cases, it's very explicit about what Tara was saying had happened with Joe Biden. And then there is this report that that Tara Reed's mother, who, as you said, is now deceased, that she had actually called into Larry King's talk show on CNN around that time and talked about this allegation. What do we know about what actually transpired there? So this has recently uh, emerged over the last week or so where an anonymous caller from Tara Reed's hometown in California called into Larry King in August of 1993. The call happens shortly after Tara is no longer on the payroll in Biden's office. And the caller mentions that yes, hello. her daughter had some problems in the office of a prominent senator. Um, I'm wondering what... Um, uh a, a staffer uh, would to do besides go to the press in Washington. My daughter has just left there uh, after working for a prominent senator and could not get through with her problems at all. And the only thing she could have done was go to the press, and she chose not to do it out of respect for him. You know, on the one hand, it is contemporaneous. I mean, it's it's immediate. On the other hand, it's very vague about what the problem actually was. We do know that there was some problems with Tara. She did not leave the office on good terms, it, it, it doesn't seem. So it does illustrate that there was a problem. Tara has identified the anonymous caller as being her mother's voice. And what is Biden's campaign saying about this? So Biden's campaign has vehemently denied that this incident occurred. They have also said that they believe that women have a right to tell their stories and that they've welcomed any investigative reporting around Tara and what her allegations are. But they have definitively said that this did not happen with Joe Biden. It's been in the voice of the campaign. Kate Bedingfield, the deputy campaign manager, has released statements along these lines. And, and that has been their, their primary response. They've also released a statement, though, from, from Marianne Baker, who was one of Tara's bosses uh, at the time in, in the Senate office. Marianne Baker worked for Joe Biden for nearly two decades, and she denies ever hearing any allegation from Tara at the time. And is Biden's campaign or staff planning on releasing any evidence or records to support their narrative that that nothing happened or that nothing was reported to their staff that aligns with this new allegation? So one other avenue we have tried to pursue is is this complaint. Tara says that she filed a complaint to a Senate personnel office one allegation that Tara has talked about that is the touchiness of uh, of Biden at the time and and how Joe Biden, the senator, made her feel uncomfortable. If that had happened, then at the time, the Senate office would also be made aware of, of that complaint. Tara says she doesn't have that complaint any longer. We've been unable to obtain it through the Senate office. One other place it might exist is Joe Biden's own papers. And we have requested from the Biden campaign to provide us with any personnel files of Tara's from the time, if they have a copy of this complaint, if they have anything at all that would shed light on Tara Reid's employment during the nine months that she worked for Joe Biden. Joe Biden has donated his papers to the University of Delaware. 
And those papers are, are not available to the public. The campaign has not yet released any of the personnel files. It's also unclear if they have copies of personnel files. Senators don't have to maintain or preserve documents the way a president does. There's no law that governs it. So it's possible that if those documents existed, that they no longer exist. It may not have been a document that Joe Biden gave to the University of Delaware. So the short answer is that the campaign is not you know, provided any documentation about Tara Reid or her employment. This is obviously a big problem or, or a big challenge for Democrats right now, especially when you consider the fact that Biden is talking about picking a woman as a vice presidential candidate and that any woman who would have to stand beside him would basically have to essentially say that she is supporting his narrative over Tara Reid's. So how are Democrats and potential vice presidential candidates kind of navigating this? There's kind of been a slow drumbeat of calls for Biden to do more, to say more about this. We've not heard from him directly, and yet we've heard from a variety of, of women who have given interviews and have been asked about these allegations. In general, they have defended Joe Biden, that they feel like they know Joe Biden and that he would not do something like this. They trust the word of the campaign and, and their denials of it. But it is tricky because they still talk about the need to hear women and listen to women and their allegations of of powerful men. And and so in, in this case, they're sort of saying that they've they've heard what Tara Reid has said, but they're choosing to believe Joe Biden and his denials over her at this moment. And I think that what makes this more complicated for Democrats who are trying to navigate this is the fact that by giving these allegations more attention and credence, that in in some ways that they are helping President Trump's reelection. And President Trump is a person who has had more than a dozen allegations of sexual assault against him. It's a very tricky thing for Democrats uh, because President Trump uh, a lot of times manages to deflect these negative stories the other complication for Democrats is that Al Franken occurred. Just to remind people, Senator Al Franken, um, he was accused of forcibly kissing and groping, and then he essentially was pressured to resign. I think Democrats have uh, also grappled with how they came to believe that they unfairly and too quickly drove Al Franken out of office. In this case, they're taking much more time to, uh, you know, examine the allegations against Joe Biden. And it seems like they're really opening themselves up to criticisms of hypocrisy here, not only from Republicans, but from a lot of Democrats who say, look, you can't be the party that listens to women and then decides to carry on with a, with a candidate who has these allegations against him and just say that you're not believing this particular woman. Exactly. Uh, and they've I mean, they've also pointed to news accounts. They've pointed to the New York Times has done an in-depth story on it. We have done an in-depth story on it. We have not definitively proven that this happened. We've also not definitively proven that it didn't. It requires politicians. It requires Democrats to sort of choose who they believe. And at least at this juncture, we've heard a lot from Tara Reid and, and, and sort of what she has to say about this. We've not yet heard directly from Joe Biden. Matt Beiser is a political reporter for The Post.
That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode of Post Reports, a show about the ways that art is reaching people, even now. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.